0: Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at Pod. And if you're the generous sort, you can support the show on Patreon with either a one-time or a recurring donation to help pay for various parts of the show. And if that's not your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on the Teespring store if you'd like. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guest today is Gabrielle Carmine. Gabrielle is a fourth-year PhD student in marine science and conservation at Duke's Marine Geospatial Ecology Lab at the Duke Marine Lab. So welcome to the show, Gabby.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: So I'm excited to have you here because I want to know what's going on with the areas of biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction negotiations, because I know very little about that. So could you please, first of all, maybe tell us what the problem is that that this is addressing, and then we'll move on to where things stand?
1: Totally. So the high seas are a somewhat neglected part of fisheries policy. And it's a massive area, right? It's two thirds of the ocean. You know, it's really a large space. And the...
0: So can you explain the limits of national jurisdiction?
1: Totally. Great point. So due to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was agreed on in 1982, a country's coastline... So if we're starting at a country's coastline, and then we go 200 nautical miles mm-hmm. from that coastline. That is considered a country's exclusive economic zone or known as an EEZ. Okay. So prepare yourself for the alphabet soup <laughs> of, <laughs> of this one. So that's an EEZ or an exclusive economic zone. And that is where the country can fish. Whatever nation um, that belongs to, and you find yourself there are some, you know, island states, small island states where they'll have more ocean as part of their jurisdiction than land.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. That's fascinating. It is a
1: yeah, it's a really you know interesting thing that was created
0: in the and that that evolved slowly and got expanded over the decades, did it not?
1: So <laughs> it's was agreed upon yeah. in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea.
0: Okay. I'm
1: not sure the speed at which it was sort of rolled out. I mean, right now what's happening is there are still um, extended continental shelf claims. Yeah. So if you think about the United States, or at least for an example, nations want to have the continental shelf included in their exclusive economic zone because that's where a lot of the fish are, right? Makes sense. for fishing. Yeah. So, because the planet doesn't work in perfect boundaries, mm-hmm. if a, a continental shelf extends beyond that 200 nautical miles, there's an opportunity for nations to request a larger easy for an extended continental shelf claim.
0: Okay. So now you were talking about how much area is beyond these national jurisdictions.
1: Yes. So that's the 200 nautical miles. Everything beyond those 200 nautical miles is the high seas or areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that is the area that we're talking about. And that includes everything. So the bottom, the benthic area, that's where seabed mining might occur. That would be the area as it's referred to in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and then all the space above it as well, where fishing occurs and things like that. And for migratory species, it is a really important space. Mm-hmm. And there is a large amount of fishing um, that goes on. And for me in my research, I use AIS data from Global Fishing Watch to Wait, use satellites. AIS? It's satellite data. Okay. Automatic identification systems data. Okay. To understand what boats are there, where they are, where they're fishing, and for how long.
0: Okay. And so we can, you can track every boat on the high seas through satellite data?
1: Not every boat, every boat that has their AIS on. So Uh, it gets a clearer picture from public data. Okay. So that's uh, part of my research. Uh, with Global Fishing Watch. And I connect those um, high seas fishing vessels to corporate actors.
0: Okay. And is that difficult to do?
1: Yes, it is. Um, And that's because oftentimes the registered owner is a shell company or a name or doesn't really exist. Or yeah, basically a shell company is any company that Is has an address, but doesn't really have an entity attached to it. And it's a subsidiary of a larger company. So sort of following the chain.
0: Okay. Okay. So back to the problem. So we've got this area that's sort of semi-lawless Yes. and everyone can fish as much as they want. Is that correct? Or is there some regulation going on here?
1: Yeah. So there are sort of patchwork bodies in the high seas called regional fisheries management organizations. And I think a lot of your listeners might know about them, Um, there are 16 bodies that manage species in their convention areas. So there are tuna RFMOs, five tuna RFMOs Mm -hmm. spread out across the oceans. And and these have been
0: negotiated between different nations?
1: Yes. So these RFMOs were, a lot of them were created before the UN Fish Stocks Agreement, but they were formalized at the UN Fish Stocks Agreement. And then nations that want to fish in an RFMOs convention area can become a contracting party okay. or a cooperating non-contracting party. Okay. Um, and so these organizations do manage species in those areas, but they're very contentious organizations
0: mm-hmm, I bet. These
1: for a lot of different reasons. So for the high sea species that are caught, right, there are 39 species of fish and invertebrates that make up... About 99% of oh, reported wow. high seas catch.
0: Just 39 species. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense.
1: Um of exclusively high seas, right? Mm-hmm. Um so and they are almost all destined for high-end markets. Mm-hmm. So these species are that are caught on the high seas are not contributing to food security and things like that. These are your Chilean sea basses, your bluefin tunas, these are high end species. So when we think about like what fish is doing for food security, the high seas is not that space. There's a great paper by Lauren Schiller that uh, goes into that. But there was an assessment of 48 different high seas fish stocks that showed three quarters are considered depleted or overfished. Wow. Um And there is a trend of, I'm assuming your listeners know about this idea of fishing down the food web, and it's been documented in extremely remote high seas places like the Antarctic Peninsula.
0: Um, Which is to say we run, we're running out of one particular species, so we start targeting the next one down in the chain.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So these industrial fisheries in the high seas, they've not only reduce the relative abundance and spatial range of target and non-target species, but they've also led to species imbalances and they've Mm -hmm. impacted the overall resilience of the high seas ecosystem by reducing the abundance of certain functional groups and overall species richness.
0: Okay. So is this a crisis situation? I mean, how how bad is this?
1: Yeah, I, I would say so. I think The reason why I got involved in high seas marine conservation is because it seemed like a huge space. For a huge space like that to not have a biodiversity treaty, to not have these biodiversity protections, seemed shocking to me.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we have this loss of biodiversity due Mm -hmm. to lack of management or poor management. Mm -hmm. And so...
1: So this has started... Uh, the research I'm talking about is re- relatively recent research, but you know it goes back, you know, pretty far. And the beginning of BBNJ, these biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction negotiations and discussions, and you know, whispers goes back at least twenty years. So okay. significantly before my time. Um, so it wasn't that clear of a storyline. So now what's happening is people are saying, okay, we want 30 by 30, right? We want 30% of our oceans to be protected by 2030. We know MPAs work. We know all of these things.
0: MPAs are marine protected areas. Yes, we know
1: marine protected areas work. We know that the high seas is experiencing a lot of industrial fishing um, and the ecosystems are really impacted by it. And what also enters into the mix is the potential for deep sea mining. Now, to be clear, deep sea mining is not my area of expertise, but it is where there are people who want, or companies that want to mine the area, so the bottom of the sea floor in the high seas, to collect materials. Um,
0: and that's sort of an up and coming industry, right?
1: Yes, Uh, very much up and coming. And that also increases pressure for a biodiversity treaty, because that can obviously have huge impacts on um, biodiversity and species richness and relative abundance and also quality of life for a lot of species. Right. So like the high seas, there are lots of migratory animals that are very sensitive very sensitive to large sounds. There's a lot of questions, um, ethical right, concerns.
0: Right, right.
1: So this BVNJ treaty went through the stages. Right now we are in the, I guess we can say we are still in the intergovernmental congress. Right. So
0: Okay. So this is a UN effort, correct? Yes. And when and and when did it get started?
1: So the official first substantive Session. So if you're looking at like the substantive session, so the intergovernmental conference, so the full name is yeah. the Intergovernmental Conference on an Internationally Legally Binding Instrument under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea on the Conservation and Sustainable Use of Marine Biological Diversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction.
0: Wow, they're really good at keeping short names. Yeah,
1: they keep it. They yeah, keep it quick, snappy. Yeah, quick and snappy rolls right off the tongue.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: So these are there have been five of these intergovernmental conferences. There were supposed to be four, and at the end of the fourth, there was supposed to be a treaty.
0: So when was the first effort? When did they first get together and start negotiating this treaty?
1: Yeah. So the first intergovernmental conference was September 4th through 17th in 2018.
0: Okay. And so, and we've we've rolled through four of them since, and then we just had a, a fifth session this summer, correct?
1: Yes, we did. We had a fifth this summer. There was only supposed to be four. And at the end of four, there was supposed to be a treaty that you know, everyone could sign and cheer champagne, but they needed a fifth intergovernmental conference, you could argue, because momentum is really important. And COVID did happen right in the middle of these. And they were supposed to be every six months.
0: Okay. And, and at the end of the fifth, there was no resolution.
1: There was no treaty. And it was, I mean, you can call me a naive early career researcher, but it was devastating. Mm
0: -hmm. It was got that sense.
1: It was unbelievably devastating. It was I think so these happen, these conferences happen over two weeks. And it was really exciting to be there, right? And the feeling in the room over these two weeks from the first day.
0: Sorry, did you say where this was, this meeting?
1: I did not. So this meeting happens at uh, UN headquarters in New York.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you were there.
1: I was there. I was in the room, which was very exciting, but there was a lot of effort in getting this done. I think from the first day of the first week, a lot of people were hopeful. I was hopeful. Mm-hmm. I was, I was convinced. And then toward the middle of the first week, I was unsure if there would be a treaty and I was looking to people who had been involved in this space for 20 plus years to see what they thought at the end of the, and then by the beginning of the second week, Monday, I was sure it would happen again. So it was very, it was very much a roller coaster of it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. By the middle of the second week, I was unsure. And then on the last day, Friday morning, I was convinced it was going to happen Um, Now, were
0: you involved with the negotiations or were you more of an observer?
1: I was an observer. Uh, It would be very cool to be involved in negotiations, but I was an observer. I had friends who were um, part of the, of IUCN's delegation um, who had more of a foot in the door, but also with these kinds of negotiations, they were informal informals. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in the room for the big discussions and for a lot of these informal informals. Mm-hmm. But when they broke out into smaller working groups, so, you know, let's say five or six nations who couldn't agree on something or wanted to get better language and they had homework to do, so to speak, mm-hmm. those rooms I was not involved in.
0: Okay. Okay. If you were saying you were sure on the last day or you thought they were going to finally get this thing resolved and get a treaty signed,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then what happened?
1: And then it, it didn't happen. So it was. So I think in the morning on Friday, I was on the last day. I was convinced there would be a treaty. I and part of that was I looked to sort of the old guard, the people who have been observers and been on delegations with the UN and in, in this space and involved with the International Seabed Authority. So they knew the dynamics of how this worked in a much deeper way than I do. And I looked to them and we were me, myself, and other early career researchers, we asked like, what do you think is going to happen? And they said, you know, I don't want to get too excited, but I think it's 50, 50. And to hear an old guard person say 50, 50 to me, I was like, that means like a mate, like that gives us a lot of hope. I mean, at least for me. So I was like, this really could happen if, you know, the cynics of the world are saying it might. Or and there was a
0: chance. deadline. Like if, if they didn't get it signed by the end of that day, that was it. By midnight.
1: So yeah. uh, it was a long night uh, filled with lots of snacks. Uh, but so basically what happened, and another reason why I was hopeful was that they most of the negotiations on Friday were happening behind closed doors. So I was not in them. So they would have a plenary where they would invite observers back in and say, we're still negotiating. We'll see you in a couple hours. And to me, that meant they were working hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were working hard in closed doors, rooms, and in, you know, one-on-one conversations. And so I was hopeful about that. And I think a lot of people were as well. I think the amount of work that was going on behind those doors is huge.
0: Okay, so you they were working hard.
1: They were. That second week and those last couple of days, they were definitely working hard. Mm-hmm. Um and I think which made it all that much more devastating.
0: For everybody. Um,
1: yeah. And I think, you know, the RGC five was paused at eleven PM, an hour before the deadline. And it has to resume to finish negotiations. We're not going to have an IGC six. It's going to still be IGC five. Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's, that's just a funny little technicality because somehow.
1: Yes, exactly. It's not done. It's just paused. Exactly. If there could be one tagline, it would be that there's okay. still not only hope, but I think like this momentum, need. like we have to ride this to the finish line. Um, so I think. I think moving forward for this next part of IGC-5, first of all, I think it should happen sooner rather than later to build on that momentum from August. And and I think IUCN put out a statement saying that they think it should be before the end of this year. Okay. Um. But- and is there all
0: sorts of negotiating going on between parties right now, even though it's not officially resumed? I would hope so. Yeah.
1: But I can't say.
0: Um, okay, so- um, Now can you, can we dig in a little bit and you can tell me about what were the problems? What were the sticking points? What were the big issues that they were trying to resolve?
1: So to talk about these sticking points, we do have to break down the treaty a bit. So there are four main sections of this treaty. Of course, it has everything that a treaty needs to have. It has definitions and it has, you know, rules and things like that. Um... But in addition, these four sections, there is area-based management tools, which people call ABMT, and that includes marine protected areas. Okay. So that's the first section. And that was the section I was the most involved in. Then there is environmental impact assessments. So that section is more, um, you know, it's your classic environmental impact assessments, like how nations have for- um, how the U.S. has environmental impact assessments as well. Um, so there's a section on environmental impact assessments, how they're going to work and the procedures of that. Then the next section is a little, another section is a little more complicated, is marine genetic resources or what people call MGRs. Um, and that includes questions on the sharing of benefits. We'll get back to that because that was a huge sticking point on what that means. Okay, um, and then the the fourth section um, is capacity building and the transfer of marine technology. So a lot of those um, regional fisheries management organizations I spoke about have you know capacity building measures and things like that. It's capacity building means if there are states um, and nations that need assistance and need help, how do we make sure that every state has the capacity? to enforce this treaty and has the capacity to protect, uh, to do what they need to, or and how do we transfer marine technology across nations? Since the area, right, the high seas are the common heritage of mankind. So the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea affirmed that um, the high seas are the common heritage of mankind. And that means it should be shared equally. So that's where you get these parts in marine genetic resources, like the questions of the sharing of benefits and capacity building and the transfer of marine technology.
0: Okay. So we're protecting, we're, we're doing protection by two methods, one by area and two by species or genes. Mm-hmm. And then we've got an investigatory monitoring section. And then we have a sort of social justice capacity building section. hmm Okay. So, you said you were going to talk more about the marine genetic resources.
1: Yeah, so marine genetic resources are fascinating and they were a sticking point for this treaty and a reason why and they it was a a roadblock. Right, a potential roadblock. Um, so marine genetic resources. I have a professor who explains this really well. So at the seafloor, there are so many things. There are so many animals, there are so many um, chemical compounds, there are so many potential, there's so many potential discoveries on the seafloor in the high seas. And marine genetic resources include genetic information on marine organisms, hosts that enable them to produce a wide range of biochemicals. And these biochemicals can potentially benefit people, right? So that would be through like pharmaceutical compounds, that could be through cosmetics, food supplements, research tools, industrial processes. So, and that is all potential discoveries, right? And so it's so uh,
0: interesting that it that that the gene is the unit that was specified. I mean, I guess it makes sense. That's where the information is stored, but that's fascinating to me that that is the unit that that is being discussed as opposed yeah. to say species, for example, or any other units people could have chosen to describe this.
1: Yeah. They also could include sort of adaptive solutions found in deep sea organisms, so things that can inspire novel materials or structural designs, right? Mm-hmm. So it does include that as well. Um,
0: I see. So this really is focused much more on genetics and innovation and stuff like that. It's not on conserving individual species.
1: Right. So my, I have a professor in the law school that's a mentor of mine, Steve Rohde, and he refers to it, I think, in a great way. He says, who owns the crab that cures cancer?
0: Okay. So it really is about the information and not about the biomass. It's the
1: information. So if if this is the common heritage of mankind and the cure to cancer is discovered there, that's going to be really profitable. So that's why this section is marine genetic resources, including questions on the sharing of benefits, right? So if it's discovered... By a company does it belong to the company how do we Mm -hmm. share that does it go to the nation state so it's getting into these like really interesting questions thinking through that
0: and so this is a major sticking point then and one of the reasons this was so difficult to resolve because there's lots of potential money on the line
1: yes exactly but it is all hypothetical and the degradation of fish and ecosystems is very real So it has become, I think there are a lot of observers and people at NGOs that find it frustrating because it's, I think, during the negotiations, Greenpeace came out with an article that was, I think, really galvanizing for people was how I felt. It was discussed, at least. So where they discussed that the UN treaty talks were set to fail because of the high ambition coalition. Hmm. So this is a group of countries, so the UN treaty talks, and this was before the end, that last day. So this was Mm -hmm. um, before then, where the High Ambition Coalition and others, including Canada and the United States at that point, prioritized hypothetical future profits from marine Mm -hmm. genetic resources over protecting the oceans, Mm -hmm. um, which then undermines. So prioritizing that then does undermine potential progress on marine protected areas in the draft treaty text. And, you know, being stuck on that prevents Mm -hmm. those sections from being enacted.
0: Okay, so that's the major – is that the only sticking point or are there other sticking points as well?
1: They could not reach consensus on any of the four sections. So the way that these informals work – so these four sections – the area-based management tools, environmental impact assessments, marine genetic resources, and capacity building and transfer of marine technology. Those happen, those are different discussions. So it'll be, let's say Monday from nine to 10 will be, or from nine to 12 will be marine genetic resources. Mm -hmm. And then from two to six will be, you know, environmental impact assessments at this, you know, they had dual negotiations happening, but that's, A different discussion. Mm -hmm. So these discussions had a facilitator and a facilitator is trying to find consensus and work with, listen to what all the delegates are saying in this space. And they're the ones who then come at the end of the plenary on the last day and said, we could not reach a consensus. And consensus couldn't be reached in any of the four sections.
0: Hmm. Okay. So you said your area of expertise was the area-based protection Yes. what was the what were the sticking points there
1: yeah so area based management tools includes marine protected areas there were a couple sticking points i would argue the biggest one was the discussion of how they would work with regional fisheries management organizations because if bbnj is signed it does overlap with regional fishery management organization convention areas mm-hmm. so there are many people in the BBNJ room who wanted to be sure that this new text doesn't undermine the ability for fisheries management. Interesting.
0: Um, that's I would have thought this would have taken over from that, or that those would be tucked into this somehow, but that's not the plan.
1: No, it is not the plan. And it is, for me, I think a lot of people in my, in my shoes are not happy with that. I think as scientists and You know, being in marine conservation and marine science, what we know about regional fisheries management organizations is that they do not work as well as they should. So there was a a couple articles, one in 2010 by Daniel Pauly and Sarika Kala Suzuki, showing that RFMOs fail to manage high seas fisheries. And then they uh, showed that again in 2015, right? And we can see that when I discussed the species that have collapsed or are overexploited.
0: And is that, if I were to make a broad generalization, would that just be because the interests and the money uh, sort of gets a hold of the actors who are negotiating the RFMOs?
1: So broadly, regional fisheries management organizations, while it is their job, to protect biodiversity as it says in UNCLOSE in the UN Fish Stocks Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um their priority is management of extraction. Right. So mm-hmm. their priority is fishing. Their priority right. is fishing in a way that can be sustainable, but their priority is not conservation.
0: Right. There's this whole sort of theory called public choice theory about the fact that we design all these laws under the assumption that these agencies will be objective actors for the public good. And in fact, that is almost never or maybe never the case that they always act as incentivized actors seeking to do something for their own good. And Uh, You know, you notice that over and over again in every agency, certainly within the United States, and I assume it applies to international agencies as well and negotiations.
1: Totally. um, It totally does. So there's um, some great work um, uh, by Hussein Sinan on on the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission. Um, He did some interviews there that showed the pretty deep connection that they have in negotiations with. Uh, Fishing companies and corporations, Mm -hmm. which implies a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jennifer Teleska has a great book on this as well, Red Gold, which is her three-year ethnography at ICAT, which is the RFMO for Atlantic tunas, Mm -hmm. um, and showed a similar finding of the, you know, corruption as we watch Atlantic tunas and bluefin tuna specifically
0: decline. Yeah. Okay. So so back to I guess I don't know if we got sidetracked if you were going somewhere with the That's area part of it. Management. Yeah. So
1: that so the a big sticking point with area-based management tools, including marine protected areas, is ceding authority to RFMOs. Mm, right. So half of the states want I think there's a clear division in amongst delegates and nations, the nations that work hand in hand with RFMOs over BBNJ and then the nations who are prioritizing the potential of BBNJ and the COP or the conference of the parties mm-hmm. for creating marine protected areas and area-based management tools. And I think it's very disappointing because fish are biodiversity.
0: Mm-hmm. So we should
1: not be ceding authority for fish to RFMOs because they are biodiversity and this treaty should be protecting them.
0: Well, furthermore, it makes sense to have one, what's going to happen when the BBNJ is in conflict with an RFMO, which one takes precedence?
1: So right now, of course, this treaty can change, but right now, RFMOs would. So if there are areas, so RFMOs aren't a full blanket, right? There are spaces where RFMOs don't protect the high seas um, or manage high seas fish stocks. I should say. And in those spaces, that's where BBNJ would have the power to create a marine protected area, create an area based management tool. But if an RFMO were to be created, Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a long time, right? But if, let's say, we want to create, me and you are creating an RFMO in that Mm -hmm. spot where there isn't one, those area based management tools and marine protected areas created by the COP at BBNJ get turned away. They get tossed aside and it's up to us to decide if we want to keep them or throw them out.
0: So I'm going to say it, even though maybe you don't want to say it. It sounds to me like it's a, uh, the two sides that are at loggerheads on a lot of this stuff are the wealthy nations that have large fishing fleets. They're going to be on the side of the RFMOs. And then you've got the less wealthy or less powerful nations who don't have large fishing fleets are going to be supporting a, the BBNJ.
1: One thing I... I, I'll add, um, neither, you know, agree or disagree necessarily, but I think one thing that I noticed in my paper that I wrote the, who studying, um, who the high seas fishing industry is, which Mm -hmm. was previously unknown, right. Connecting individual fishing vessels to an actual beneficial owner. Um, so who is benefiting from that catch um, in the high seas? It's surprising because something that we found is corporate actors fishing in the high seas that were flagged to US companies so that had companies headquartered in the US yeah that was less than 5% huh. of high seas fishing effort globally so you would think that i would you would think that the US would be more i guess ambitious in protecting shared ocean biodiversity in these international negotiations.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what makes it so complicated is we're not just dealing with nation states, we're dealing with transnational, very powerful transnational corporations as well, in this, whether they're they're not at the they're not in the room, but they're there.
1: Yes, exactly. And you know, I think so that's a big part of my thesis, right? Is this idea that, you know. We understand fishing as a nationalized experience, right? Right. Um, But nations don't fish, corporations do. Right. So it is, and I think it's important to think that through and also to think about how corporations work. There's a new book out by my mentor, uh, Jennifer Jaquette, um, called The Playbook. She wrote, and it is an incredible book. Highly recommend it. The full title is "The Playbook: How to Deny Science, Sell Lies, and Make a Killing in the Corporate World." Sort of a uh, Stephen Colbert alter ego tone to it, and it is—it's really great. And I think it's a lens we need to think through when we're thinking through BBNJ and RFMOS and how these corporations fish and act, and how we should understand accountability mm-hmm. for actions in these spaces and.
0: So what's what happens now? Are you optimistic that any of this is going to get resolved by the end of the year, as you said?
1: I don't know about end of the year. Um, And I think I was in August, but it's October now. So probably not by the end of the year. Um, But I am optimistic by the end of next year that there will be a treaty. I okay. think the momentum was strong. I think people were really negotiating in good faith. That's um, good. I also think that there is an element of shame and public perception, right? It is embarrassing that this treaty was not signed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, delegates and nations feel that because at the UN Ocean Congress in in Lisbon in June, there were all these nations and all these big talks about how we're going to have a global oceans treaty and how exciting it was. And then it fell flat, right? And that is embarrassing. Yeah. And I think it should incentivize more more of a ministerial presence at the resumption of IGC5 mm. because it takes a lot of time for delegates to negotiate and then call their boss really quick and then come back, you know.
0: So have have the authority to make decisions in the room.
1: Yes, I think everyone should bring in the their boss.
0: Okay. Well, we'll hope that we get there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hope, I'm hopeful.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Gabby, for explaining all of this to me so patiently.
1: Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me on. This was great.
0: Now, we usually finish with five questions, but we've gone a long time. So I'm just going to have to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. You ready? Sounds good. This okay. is the hard part. Oh, no. All right. What is your favorite fish?
1: Ooh, favorite fish. Yeah. Hmm, I would say it would be a common pipefish.
0: Oh, that's an interesting one. Tell me.
1: So I am born and raised in New York, in New York City. Uh huh. Um, so I came a little bit later to field work and learning species and holding them, and I worked at this place called the River Project, which is still exists on the Hudson River. And there are fish in the Hudson River. And I remember being in college and seeing one and holding one and feeding one and, you know, catching them and releasing them and being absolutely shocked at how cool they looked and how interesting they were and that they were in the Hudson. And yeah, yeah, right. yeah it's exciting for me. And that's
0: sort of how you got interested in this stuff in the first place then?
1: Yeah, it was my first like hands-on experience was helping out with their fish ecology study.
0: Awesome. So cool. And that was, you were at NYU?
1: Yeah, NYU.
0: Okay, and second of all, I'm skipping to the last question. Yeah. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be?
1: Um, that would be that wild fish and invertebrates were something more like wild animals and less like traded commodities. And that is a line from a recent article from jennifer jaquette and daniel Pauly that i absolutely loved
0: so clarify that a little bit for me
1: yeah that wild fish are thought of more as wild animals than traded commodities so that means we should be thinking of fish as a wild animal in the same way that we see whales and you know charismatic megafauna like turtles or like lions and tigers and bears, right? They're wild animals. They're not stocks. They're not resources. They are wild
0: animals. Yeah, good point. Okay, so thank you again, Gabby, for coming on the show.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest today has been Gabrielle Carmine, and my name is Anders Halverson. And if you would, oh, Gabby, if people want to get a hold of you or get to get more information or whatever, how should they do that?
1: Yeah, they can find me on Twitter. They can look me up online.
0: What's your Twitter handle? Oh,
1: let me say, is at Gabby Carmine.
0: Oh, well, that's easy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they can find you on Twitter, and they can probably just find you if they Google Gabrielle Carmine.
1: Yes, yeah, they can find my website and things like find that. Find your
0: website and send you an email. Okay, well, thanks again, Gabby. I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the FisheriesPodcast.com. And don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a contribution through Patreon or by buying some awesome fisheries pod swag on Teespring.